Hello, it's Andy Miller, the co-host of Backlisted here, uh, and welcome to another episode from our archives. Uh, on this occasion, you're going to hear a, a, a show we recorded in 2016 about David Seabrook's unique non-fiction book, All the Devils Are Here. One of the nice things about making Backlisted over the last eight years has been the occasions when a book that we have covered for reasons of personal enthusiasm becomes something that our listeners discover, enjoy, tell one another about, and in the case of All the Devils Are Here, is actually brought back into print partly because of being featured on Backlisted. Our guest on this episode, Rachel Cook, and I share uh, a real love of this strange, nightmarish, three-part essay collection. Well, I'm, so I'm struggling to describe it. As you'll discover when you listen to the episode, there is no other book like All the Devils Are Here. And one of the delightful things about listening back to this episode is the way in which Rachel, John, Matthew, Matt, our original producer, and I <laughs> sound so happy to have met three or four other people who have read this book <laughs> and who are astounded that such a thing could be in the world, be so glorious. And we all bring different interpretations of it uh, to the conversation. And we all bring our enthusiasm and our bafflement. And as Rachel says in the episode, the sense that you are reading a man having a nervous breakdown before your very eyes. David Seabrook would have been astonished, I think, that this book, following its republication by Granter a few years ago, has gone on to be a word-of-mouth bestseller in a way that it certainly was not when it was first published. And if we have played a small part in that, it makes me tremendously proud. I also can remember when we recorded this episode I had the feeling that I always get um, when we make a good show. It's tremendously satisfying to think, well, people will listen to this and they will need to read this book. And the show still stands up. I think you can hear in my enthusiasm and John's and Rachel's uh, quite what a special and strange book, All the Devils Are Here Is. Anyway, this is the last show um, that you'll be hearing from our archives. We're back soon with new episodes of Backlisted and a new season, which we're really looking forward to. Some really exciting guests coming up, some really interesting books. But in the meantime, uh, please enjoy our attempt to connect 
something with something uh, in this discussion from 2016 of David Seabrook's All the Devils Are Here. Should I eat? You should definitely eat puffin while you're there. I've got a taxidermy puffin that I took delivery of about three weeks ago, and it's the best thing ever. Oh, they're a bit salty, but apparently they're delicious. No, don't ignore what Rachel just said. <laughs> <laughs> You've got how? Where did you? It's Edwardian. Okay. I got it from. Where did you source your puffin? <laughs> yeah. I, I got it from a, a shop called Hunter and Rose, oh, which yeah. sells lots of taxidermy, yeah. which I'm obsessed with. But I'd always wanted a puffin, you know, because they of the puffin beautiful. books. Yeah, and it, but they're so little. <laughs> Were you all in the puffin club? Yes. Oh yes. Totally. Totally, I was. I've got all my back issues in a plastic folder. That do you remember? You got a plastic folder. Yeah. Brilliant. It was just the, the first time I attended a happening at the ICA which was something I was to do, obviously, often in later life. But the first time was for the Puffin... Um, it was called the Puffin Jamboree. Or oh, wow. Puffin, uh, I queued up for Bernard Cribbins's autograph at the oh. ICA. Oh. I seem to remember. And Quentin Blake's. His first and last appearance at the ICA. Yeah. We all dropped first it. first author event I ever went to was, was Michael, Michael Bond to Bookshop in Tame. I thought this was the most amazing thing. I never thought you could meet authors. It was yeah. really exciting. Is your puffin kind of vertical or is it in an action shot? It's ver- vertical <laughs> and it's in a glass dome right. and it's it's absolutely brilliant. I, I'll take a picture of it when I get home and I'll tweet um, it and then you can all yeah, look at it. Really, we put it on the, on the page. Um, Are they sort of the stuffed Edwardian puffins? It, it was quite, you a while to find It was one. quite expensive, yeah. Um, it? But okay. it was one of those things where I felt I had a momentary sickness when I realised how much I was going to have to pay, but then I thought, fuck it. <laughs> and I was really happy when it arrived. And it's so cool. Cool, but I'm really nervous about it. So when people come round, they come in and they go, "Oh, oh, a puffin!" and they run towards it, and then I, I'm just like, step away from the puffin. Yeah, you know, because I don't want anything to happen. It's to not it. in a glass. It's not in a glass dome. It's in a glass dome, but it, yeah. it's slippy, slidey the dome right. on the base, yeah, yeah. and but, you know. But they are supposed to be quite tasty. But they, they used to on, on St Kilda, they catch them and they flatten them, and they. You know, put them in a salted barrel. Oh, it's gannets. They do that with they unkilled. Do, they do, yeah. but they keep the. They still the, do it on Lewis, don't they? If you were for kids, <laughs> gannets club. <laughs> if you were, if you were, if you were a kid, a special treat, birthday treat on St Kilda was to get a, a puffin in your porridge, which <laughs> you can imagine would be delicious, flattened, salty, greasy, fishy tasting puffin. That's a memoir. Yeah. Puffin in the porridge, isn't it? That's, yeah. uh... <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. As usual, we're gathered round the kitchen table in the luxurious offices of our sponsors, Unbound, the website that brings authors and readers together to make fabulous books. I'm John Mitchinson, publisher at Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And with us, as usual, is author and hip priest, uh, Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, thanks for that. And joining us today is journalist, critic and author, uh, Rachel Cook, her most recent book, her brilliant career, Ten Women of the Fifties, was published in 2013. And we're here today to talk about David Seabrook's All the Devils Are Here. Hello, Rachel. Hello. <laughs> but, John, what have I been reading? That's what, <laughs> what you're going to reading. Uh, the sad news this week of the death of Jim Harrison, the American writer. I hadn't read a Jim Harrison novel for a long time which made me sad because he's one of those writers that you dip into and dip out of, and he's amazingly prolific. 
think, 21 novels, um, something like 18 volumes of poetry. He's also a foodie, writes really well about food, great friend of uh, Anthony Bourdain. But he's best known, I suppose, for his fiction, which is often compared to Hemingway. One of the things I wanted to read or reread, which was a, a, one of his novels, his sort of first period of his novels, a book called Dalva, which I think was first published in 1988. And the reason I want to do it is it's the most un-Hemingway-like of his novels. Yet he looks, he lost his eye in childhood. His head looks like a classic American, hard-drinking, yeah. hard-living, yeah. living out in Montana, fly-fishing before breakfast, walking his dogs, drinking massively. I read that he, uh, amongst his achievements <laughs> in his life, was that he had successfully eaten a 37-course meal. <laughs> yeah, whatever, bring it on. Yeah. I yeah. love food, I can eat. He was really loved in America and really loved in France. Oh, He's loved in France, that. right? That, He's barely read. published here. He was published by uh, Second Warburg for a long time. His great right. publisher in the States is Morgan Entrican of Grove Atlantic, who yeah, wrote right. a very good obituary this week. But I don't think we really produce writers like Harrison in the UK. I mean, Thomas McGuane is yeah, another yeah. one. I mean, he writes about nature. And it's very easy to reach for, 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 for Hemingway. He wrote, rather wonderfully once wrote about Hemingway that Hemingway was a stove that a wood stove that didn't give out much heat, which I sort of feel is, is true. Whereas Harrison, he's, he's sort of a deeply admirable novelist. At Dalva, the book that I, I've been rereading, is about a 45-year-old part Sioux woman who has got to a stage in life where she wants to go back to the place where she grew up and to find her son. Her, she, her son was taken from her when she was when she was young and also the son's father. And the way it's structured is it's in her voice and she's a fantastically centred, strong, independent woman. She's never been seduced by anybody She, insofar as there's ever been uh, relationships in her life. She's done the seducing. The middle section of the book is then an alcoholic professor called Michael, a uh, rather kind of creepy, unpleasant sort of narrative about his obsession with the young waitress, and he's writing about Dalva's mm. great-grandfather, who was a Civil War hero and also one of the great historians. He was on the sort of side of the, the Sioux in the Battle of Little Bighorn. So it's American history, it's wilderness, it's family drama, and he kind of navigates that. His Prose is never flashy. I think he's just a great storyteller. All the things that you would want from an, a novel, it's sort of here. I've, I've never read him, but when you talk about him, I remember seeing his books stacked up in Compendium in yeah. Camden. And I, I remember when I worked for Waterstones in the early 90s, we used to import them. They were staples along with the Bukowskis. And every year there'd be a new Jim Harrison novel. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, you know, nobody would read it except for those people who love <laughs> this kind of American fiction. I mean, he's got this great environmental, e ecological thing going as well. So Gary Snyder, the poet, was, is also another writer he kind of gets compared to. He, Jim Harrison didn't much like academia. And he was constantly turning down lucrative offers to... to teach creative yeah. writing and when he was asked once why why he Somebody, kept turning them down somebody's got to stay outside yeah. <laughs> brilliant i love that but, but also he uh again just because it's amusing to me i couldn't find it but dalva was made into a tv movie starring farrah fawcett was it <laughs> farrah, fawcett. Mm -hmm. farrah fawcett majors as we used to know her back in the day but as the as dalva which sounds like a total car crash but it's really good life-affirming, proper grown-up fiction, which is why I think he's so popular in France. Do you know a French magazine, a famous French magazine called Les Anrocoupe Tibler? No. 
It is brilliant. There's no equivalent magazine of it in the UK. It's Great. fantastic. Like Apostrophe, the yeah, TV show that everybody fantastic. would go on. Oh, we have Apostrophe. <laughs> but it's really brilliant, equal split between music and film and books. And there were always big profiles yes. of Jim Harrison in yeah. Les Anne Rock. Because... Well, I suspect also it probably translates really well because the language is definitely non-flash. He writes beautifully about nature, but yeah. he, he doesn't write in a kind of fancy pants way. Well, I've never read anything by him. Matthew, have you read anything by Jim Harrison? I never heard of him before. Rachel, have you read anything by Jim Harrison? Uh, no, not not exactly my sort not, of thing. Not up your street, no. <laughs> a man who eats thirty-seven courses. Well, that I I'm his all in favour of. But, well, actually, um, his food writing is, is yeah. good. It's very easy. He, he's a bit of a gourmand. Somebody said it's he was writing down with one hand what killing rattlesnakes <laughs> with his other. <laughs> That's what I've been reading. Andy, what have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading... Well, what have I... <laughs> OK, so very... Pre- I read... Elizabeth uh, Taylor? A novel... Yes, I did read something by Elizabeth Taylor, because I'm always reading something by Elizabeth Taylor, as you know. I also read Life and Death of Harriet Freen by May Sinclair. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't, but I've heard it's depressing. That's all right. Yeah, I mentioned it when I was in the yeah. office last week, and one of your colleagues said, that is the most depressing book yep. ever written. <laughs> and uh, indeed, it's very bleak. But it, it was really, really good. May Sinclair inv- invented, was very well known in her lifetime. This book was published in 1919, and it's the story of a woman's life from birth to death. It's very short. You could read it in a couple of hours. <laughs> but uh, May Sinclair invented the term stream of consciousness. Oh, Lord. And so he's one of these people who, in her, in her day... No, May Sinclair. And in her day was considered... An important writer, an avant-garde writer, almost entirely forgotten. And the unmistakable green livery of old school. There's nothing so cheering. No, I agree. I agree. And I miss it still. I bought this in a pile of (laughs) BMCs for Argo Modern Classics from Oxfam in Canterbury about a month ago. And clearly some feminist had either died or repented and, and got rid of everything to Oxfam. But I came back with this and, as it happens, eight Elizabeth Taylor novels. Talking of Oxfam and people returning things, there was the, the single most successful tweet, Wikipedia, the QI account, this week was that you perhaps saw it. It's got, like, thousands and thousands of retweets. It was at Folkestone, I think it was, Folkestone Secondhand Bookshop. So many returned copies of Fifty Shades of Grey that they've actually built a fort yeah. in the shop at it and they, and they <laughs> photographed they it. They quote begged, <laughs> begged customers <laughs> not to hand in copies. We've done everything we can to yeah. cope with it. It's quite, but the picture is, yeah, yeah. it's proper. It's not a, you know, not a small fort. It's Have a, any of you read Fifty Shades of Grey? I've read the first 20 pages. No. Uh, I have I have not I ran out any of I ran out of steam. Have, have, have you? Have you? Well, I had to interview Erica James. Is it Erica? Yeah, James. James. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had to interview her, so I'm very conscientious. So I knuckled down, as it were, <laughs> uh, to read it. Um, and even the Protestant that I am, I just couldn't get through it. No, it's yeah. quite astonishingly bad. It's not sort of this is fun bad. It's sort of. Yeah. Help me, bad. Yeah. It's fan fiction. Mm. It's as, w- as well written as a lot of fan fiction is. Mm. And yet, mysteriously, as is the way... Well, this is... Uh, let's choose to accentuate the positive. Yeah. That's what makes publishing so interesting, because the public decide what they want to read. And, I, you know, I love the madness of five million people in the UK. There's, re- re- that, there's that strange thing, isn't it, about erotica publishing, mm. which is actually it's all about BDSM. 
they've all got that element. They've all got an SNL element. And those are the books that people like reading when Black Lace yeah. launched whenever it was 20 years the, ago that Virgin yeah. launched it. They were all... They closed all, Black you know, Lace down the, week, the year before uh, <laughs> um, Fifty Shades came out. It was kicking us over. It's weird that that work in literature, why is that particular... I didn't know um, what fan fiction was, and I was at the hairdresser, and my hairdresser said, she said, everyone in the salon is reading Fifty Shades of Grey, and I said, oh, you know, and she said, it's, you know, it's fan fiction, and I said, well, what is that? And she said, well, like, any character from anything has sex with another character from anything, and I couldn't quite understand what she meant, and she said, she went on this website on her phone, my hair was all, like, in foil, (laughs) so we had plenty of time, and she said, um, she said, like, okay, Okay, here's a character from EastEnders, and he's gonna. What's a character from literature that you like? And I just said, you know, some random figure from, you know, like The Hobbit or something. And, and sure enough, you know, there's one of the Mitchell brothers frantically having it off with, you know, some <laughs> wizard or something. I mean, it, it's just bizarre. It is quite bizarre. I, I, I met someone once, her thing was that she wrote so erotic fan fiction, and it was Vikings. And Navy SEALs. So <laughs> I can't remember whether it was the Navy SEALs that went back in time to shag the Vikings or the Vikings, but it was like it was it was quite particular and and you know Do you know the it was, so it, do you know where yeah. fanfic starts? Do you know the, the, the program which birthed it? No. Go on. No. It's of course it's Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, and it's and specifically it was, an, Kirk, I've it was read, Kirk and Spock. It was I, the unspoken. I've read I've read unconvincing arguments that the whole of literature, you know, the the kind of um, you know the the anxiety of influence Harold Bloomy envisioned is that all fiction yeah. is fan is fan you fiction. Know, there was an, an article there was an article that appeared online uh, about last month which said what is Gene Reese's wide sargasso sea if, if not, not fan, fan fiction? fiction? Well, it, there's a kind of a well that's <laughs> a, certainly a, true in that operating case. at a very high level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they just overstate their claim, as does I would suggest Harold Bloom in Anxiety of Influence, but that's a that's a yeah. So also, can I, I'm going to talk about this anyway briefly. So I'm going to Iceland next week. Iceland, Iceland. The Iceland. Land of I've puffins. never been to Iceland. We're all going together. It's going to be very my family. I'm not you. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say no, no one no, told no, me no, that no. was part of it. Anyway, it's going to be cars outside. <laughs> so I put a thing up on Twitter two days ago saying I'm going to Iceland next week. I'm very excited. Can anybody recommend me a great Icelandic book? Several people recommended the same books. So uh, several people recommended Burial Rights by Hannah Kent. Yeah. Several people recommended Independent People by Haldor Laxness. And indeed, or Fish Can Sing, which your lovely wife, Rachel Kerr, recommended yeah. over Independent People. So I'm, I've started reading Fish Can Sing. Somebody here recommended Letters from Iceland by W.H. Auden and Louis McNeese. Names for the Sea by Sarah Moss. Oh, I read that. Names for the Sea, it's not called that, but there is a very good ceremony. Her first novel is set in Iceland. Well, this is a non-fiction book about her moving to Iceland. Ah, well, her first novel is about a group of archaeologists who are digging up some ancient site and it all gets very terrifying and it's rather gripping. Yeah, it's rather Mm -hmm. gripping. Mm -hmm. And also, I was recommended a a very short book called uh, The Blue Fox by Sion, which, John, I think you would love. Sounds Which great. is a book about, it's set in the 19th century and it starts with an unnamed man hunting a fox. It then goes back to explain who the unnamed man is. The unnamed man, as he shoots at the fox, causes an avalanche. And once the snows have buried him, 
extremely strange, gothic and psychedelic things start God, to happen. great. Uh, with swapping of identities and such like. It was terrific. The point, uh, the reason why I mention that is I put that tweet out about three o'clock. By half past three, I was reading the book. And by half past five, I finished it. Who says the 21st century? Well, no, it's wonderful. Yeah. You know, 10 years ago, yeah, no, I that agree. whole process, it would still only take you two hours to read the book, but it would take you two weeks to get two the to recommendation and find it. Yeah, <laughs> two We, we don't have weeks. it, but we can order it for <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, um. I've never been, I've always wanted to go, and I love also the Orton McNeese, which is one of my great, I mean, go back to the lot. And the other one is Burn Jones. And William Morris. Mm. Oh, yeah, I've got, I've, so I've got that here. Weird, yeah, in fact, yeah, it has or this weird of sort of position in our imagination. It's sort of strangely, it's kind of not really part of our culture, but it kind of is. I mean, you go, yeah. most of Ireland and Scotland are genetically Vikings anyway. So, mm. But this, the, the thing, uh, other than their strange belief in, in fairies, which they seem to really genuinely do, if you get up north, they really do believe. There is the other thing is that the, the Icelandic phone directory is organised by first name because every, basically <laughs> okay. everybody has to. <laughs> and I will, surname's, great. surnames are son uh, of and or daughter and and and, yeah. uh, and son. Yeah. So it's... Oh, so yeah. So we're going and we're going. To, so we're going to the interior. We're going uh, whale watching and <laughs> we're going to. We're going to the hot Witchcraft Springs. Museum and the Hot Springs, and we're going to the Phallological oh, yeah, Museum. I was going to say, the Phallological, course, the Phallological Museum, museum. Is, is got the, um, it's got the largest preserved... It's Blue Whale Penis, I think, which is the Indeed. largest one in the, in the world. The gift shop is incredible. I feel we're almost, I was going to feel we're almost teetering on the would edge. Would you like of, me uh, to bring you back a badge or a rubber? <laughs> <laughs> which, which would you prefer? I've, it's what, always been top of my list on where to visit if I okay, find myself well. in Reykjavik. So... Um, so that covers that covers the water, and of course it? the wow. shark, the shark, the buried shark, disgustingness. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. Well, we should probably move on to the the subject of our <laughs> the podcast. Subject. The actual yeah, subject not? of our podcast, which is "All the Devils Are Here" by David Seabrook. Should we start by asking Rachel to say why you chose this remarkable book for the podcast, other than the fact that it is remarkable? Well, the thing about it is. People always say that there's no book like this, and it's just never true. But in this case, I really think there isn't another book like it. I certainly can't think of one. And to me, it's a kind of minor masterpiece that no-one knows about, and I would like people to read it. When did you first read it? Can you remember? Well, there's something spooky about this book, which we will talk about, but uh, for me (laughs) personally, it's been quite spooky. When it came out in 2002, I read a review of it. And the review made a great impression on me. But it, it was one of those things where I, it was only an impression. I couldn't remember the name of the book or the author. And I kept Googling, and I must be a really crap Googler because <laughs> I'd type in, like, you know, Kent, murderers, weird things, you know, and, and, and this book <laughs> would never... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the book would never come up. And it was driving me mad. And this went on for years. And then uh, in 2011, so... Yeah, quite uh, a long time after it was yes, published. Yes, n- nine years later, yeah. massive name drop coming up. I was at a dinner at, to celebrate Claire Tomlin's Dickens biography, which was yeah. appropriate because Dickens is in this yeah, book, indeed. as we will discuss. And I was sitting next to Claire's publisher, who was then Tony Lacey from Viking. 
And he was doing that old school publishing thing of slightly <laughs> boasting about his second home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Someone did that to me last week. <laughs> Very old school. I mean, Th- them were days. Yeah, them, them were the um, days. And he divides his time. <laughs> between, he divides his time between Chiswick <laughs> and... Deal. I always think when that says that on a jacket, I always think toss-up. But anyway, um, so... And he was talking about Deal, and I said, gosh, Deal, you know. And I said, you must read Roger Lewis's book about Charles Hawtrey, The Man Who Was Private Whittle. It's brilliant. And he said, yes, I've heard it's very That's good. Great. Yeah, he said, I've heard it's very good, but I'm actually reading a really good book about about Thanet and the coast. And, and it's Can I co- just interrupt you? I recommended that book to Tony Lacey. Did really? You? Yeah. Well done, Andy. The interconnectedness of all things. Well, anyway, and he said, I'm reading this book, it's called All the Devils Are Here. And as he said it, I became, you know, I had this goosebump thing of thinking, this is the book I've been looking for for nine years. I've been trying to find out what this book is, and here it is. So I went home, I went on to a book, so I bought it. And I suppose all of us in our lives you do occasionally have that feeling where a book comes to you and you feel like it might have been been written almost for you. Mm -hmm. It maybe happens maybe two or three times. Now, it says something very weird about me that I felt that about <laughs> this book um, but I did and I, and I'm I, going to read the blur <laughs> in a minute and you, know, you can make up your own mind I just briefly say why I have a very powerful feeling about faded seaside towns yeah. As a kid, my granny used to take me to Bridlington and um, Withensea. No one's heard of Withensea. And and even once we had a, a week at Pontins and Morecambe. And I had very intense experiences in these places, which I perhaps won't describe here. But So I love those depressing seaside towns. To me, a, a, a weekend in, in, in Eastbourne is like the best thing that you can do, really, and going around charity shops. and But also, a lot of the people in this book... A peop- it sounds so weird to say this, but from my childhood. So, for instance, Richard Dad, the first painting that I ever knew was The Fairy Fellas Masterstroke because mm. I had a big postcard of it in mm. my bedroom. I don't know where it came from. Also, Dickens was our household god. My dad and my granny were that thing that might not exist now, which is working-class fans of Dickens. Yeah, yeah. And... They didn't really think that any other novels were, like, worth reading. (laughs) My granny was blind, so she'd only ever listened to them, but they'd read Dickens. What you did was you read Dickens, and when you finished, you started again. And in our hall, there was a big picture of Dickens. My dad just worshipped Dickens. My sister was called Florence for Florence Dombey. So, So there was Dickens and Richard Dad and Seaside Towns, and I just had this feeling of awful kind of recognition and... To me, a lot of books, people say, this is such an interesting book. And then you start to read it. And actually, there were interesting bits, but there were loads of longers. This book, there's something interesting on every page, in every paragraph. But I'm going to read the blurb in a minute, because I think it's important that people (laughs) tell people what the book is about, to the the extent that one can do that. But one of the things that's brilliant about this book, I felt... The Sound of Young Victoria. I felt rereading. I felt rereading it was that Seabrook stays on the subject as long as he is interested in it, and then bolts to the next one. And it layers and layers and layers as it goes on, which actually is a really high risk strategy because because you would think it would be 
you, you would be left with a feeling of superficiality, but actually I, I don't and also feel that at all. it's a short book. Yeah. It's a yeah. short book. So let, let me just read the blurb, because we can assume that lots of people listening may not have I heard I think almost book, no right? one. Yeah. <laughs> well, here, this is what... This is... Um, I know for a fact that this blurb was written by... But it is, we should say it is, it is available on Kindle. It's available on Kindle at the moment, um, yeah. It, I'd very much love to see it available again. Come on, Grant, to do the right thing. Yeah. Anyway, or, or let me someone let else, me like, um, unbound or someone like that. This blurb was probably written by David Seabrook's editor Neil Belton, the great Neil, the, the great Neil Belton, who is in uh, an author in his own right, of course. So, yeah. I'm just, but so just let me read the the blurb here. In his first book, David Seabrook takes us on a deranged exploration of the Kentish coastal towns of Thanet and Medway. He fuses his observation of these depression landscapes city centres full of unemployed young men and asylum seekers and dodgy characters, with literary and historical associations that seem through his eyes more like bad dreams than heritage advertisements for the local tourist board. He sees the desperate jollity of Margate, where T.S. Eliot stayed after the Great War, as a key element in the making of the wasteland. He sees the desperate jollity of Margate, where T.S. Eliot stayed after the Great War, as a key element in the making of the wasteland. His Rochester and Chatham crawl with the ghosts of Dickens and the parricide Richard Dad. In Broadstairs, site of John Buchan's The 39 Steps, he uncovers a weird network involving Lord Curzon, Buchan, William Joyce and Audrey Hepburn's father. In Deal, he stumbles on the true sordid story that lay behind The Servant, Robin Maugham's novel later turned into a film by Joseph Losey and links it to the milieu of not-so-gentle gay retirees to the coast, a network that touches on the murder of the boxer Freddie Mills and the self-destruction of the carry-on actor Charles Hawtrey. Written with high energy and seriousness, disturbingly personal and surprising, this is a unique book. There are devils here and the reader will remember them. Yep. Now, I hope that makes everybody pause the podcast and go and download a copy of this book. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm just going to say to Rachel, the circumstances under which I read this book are slightly different. I remember reading a couple of reviews of it, as you did, and thinking, oh, that sounds interesting, but not doing anything about it. And then my family moved in 2005 to the East Kent coastal town of Whitstable, where we still live. And... Um, I walked into the Remainder bookshop, the excellent Harbour Books, hello Harbour Books if you're listening, and there was a pile of copies of All the Devils Are Here, reduced in price, with a, a sign next to them saying local interest. <laughs> Which so is such I, a turn-off. Local right, interest are right, my worst right. words. And especially when you know what the book is about and how seedy <laughs> and feverish it is, right? Ooh, so I picked it up and read it in, on the train journey into London and the train journey back. And I remember putting it down at the end, and we will, we'll have to say something about the ending of the book, <laughs> thinking, what, what did I just read? Yeah. What, what was that book? And I found that it really stayed in my head for the next few weeks. So I read it again and then thought, whoa, well, this is absolutely. the energy of it. I'm definitely going to read it again. I finished it this morning, in fact, early this afternoon. It is just... It is sui generis, I think. I think there are things that we obviously that you can say that it, it's it's like. There are connections, perhaps, to Ian Sinclair's mm. work. It reminds me, in some ways, of W. G. Zabalt's uh, "The Rings of Saturn: Journey Through Suffolk on Foot." But it's 
in its kind of mixture. It's strange, as you were saying before, Andy, the way it's, it doesn't make any attempt to be coherent in the way that, that most books do. The thesis, if there is one, he never really reveals what it is. It's a, it seems to me, I've never, I've never quite had the kind of hair stand up on the back of my neck in the same way. It's, it's like demonic possession. It's like he's exploring mm, like demonic possession without ever saying that's what he's doing. Well, also, it is a bit like House of Cards when Kevin Spacey turns yeah, and says yes, something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, he's he's going along. It's quite sort of scholarly and factual, and you're thinking, ah, oh, yes, this person murdered this person, this person had sex with this person. And then all of a sudden he goes... And he tells you something about himself. Yeah. It's oblique. It's not clear. You don't know that much about him. And then you have this chilling feeling. You feel, I think, frightened of him and frightened for him. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. you think, what's he going to do? Is he mad? Is he, is, he, is he sick? Is he a pervert? And, of course, by the time I read this book, David Seabrook was already dead. He, he died yeah. young, as they say. And, and so to, to have this feeling of being afraid of him and afraid for him. It was a very unnerving thing. It reminded me very much of when you're reading as a child. When I was a kid, I was mad on those books by Peter Haining, the, the pan book of yes, vampires. Yes, 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 and, yeah. and, it, and those books were full of things that you couldn't really understand when you were a kid. You, you knew you liked them, but you couldn't understand them. And that's, I feel that about this. There are lots of things in this book that I understand. I understand that Richard Dad killed his, his father and he was a fantastic painter and he went to a loony bin. I know that. But there are so many things I don't understand about this book. Why are they in here? Why is David Seabrook like this or that? What's happened to him? Yeah. Is he gay? Is he straight? What, yeah. what, what, Why what? Why is he drawn to these? Yes. I mean, that whole sense of, of, of places, the, the house... In Broadstairs. In Broadstairs, mm. that becomes the home to... There's a house called Noldera, which Noldera, is the scene right. of the 39 steps, which he then brilliantly moves slightly along the coast to, to a nearby house, which is the home of Os Oswald Mosley. The whole way he, he kind of connects that story well, with... Well, no, Lord. it's not the house of Oswald, but no. Noldera was the house of Curzon, and Curzon's daughter, no, Cynthia, right. was married to Oswald Mosley. Yeah, yeah, she yeah, was yeah, the yeah, first yeah, yeah. Mrs Mosley. And then Noldera then became the, the home of this man, Arthur Tester, who was a leading light in the Me. British Union of fascists. fascists. Yes. Yeah. And then the story of Lord, that enables the story of Lord Hoho and, and, and Audrey Hepburn's dad, who turns yeah. out to be a fascist as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you just you don't know where he's taking you, but you don't mind him taking you, even though, you you know, as they say, I, you have a bad feeling about this. I had, um, <laughs> I had a really interesting conversation earlier in the week. I rang Neil Belton up. Because it was comparatively difficult to find out things about David Seabrook. So I rang Neil up and he told me that the book came to him via David Seabrook sending one of the essays in whatever form to Ian Sinclair. Mm -hmm. And Ian Sinclair, who at that time was published by Neil, passed it on to Neil with no agent involved, saying, I think you should look at this. And that thing, Rachel, that you were saying about Seabrook being someone you were <laughs> a narrator you were afraid of and afraid for, this is a thing that Ian Sinclair wrote about David Seabrook. He describes him in a very Sinclairish way as a dull cue de Quincey. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes on to say, refusing to allow the area he inhabits, the banishment, to become a noose, Seabrook has decided to celebrate it 
with a virtuoso exhibition of sardony. Yes. His franchise, the area he describes raiding and returning, is anywhere that can be reached in an hour or so by bus or train from Canterbury. <laughs> he gives true. Is, It's true, isn't it? He gives his readers an ear-bashing they won't forget. And when Seabrook died earlier this year, it was a horribly premature loss. Now this mysterious author is fated to become part of the zone he described to yeah, such yeah, effect, yeah, yeah, an yeah. anecdote, a rumour, a legend. Yeah, that's isn't great. Isn't that brilliant? But but a process which Seabrook is is well, complicit that, in, right? And, and, I mean, you're, he's absolutely right about the fact that he doesn't want to move far from Canterbury because in the book he'll be talking to someone really fascinating and he says, well, my bus is due in a minute, yeah. I've got to go. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. And, and you think, I know, so true. And, and it's funny because he doesn't quite do it. He doesn't really lay on kind of the humour or the irony, although there's a great letter at one point where somebody... Writes to him and says, Your book of essays on Kent and its history should make interesting reading. Oh, yes, I was going to read. And I just, so, yes, I'm writing a book of essays on Kent and its history, which is true, (laughs) but so not what. Yes, he goes, yes, absolutely, he goes to Gillingham. That's the daughter of Lord Hawhorn who says that. Which is a a great interview. Mm. Rachel, do you want to read like the first. I mean, this, the book is, the book's divided Mm. into four. So there are three chapters. The first chapter is Rochester and Chatham. The second chapter is Northfall and Broadstairs. And the third chapter is, um, what is it? Oh, it's Deal. Of course it is. But there's a, what he calls a prelude, which is Margate. And it's about T.S. Eliot's nervous breakdown and he goes to Margate to write. And I don't think I realised this at the time, but it's really obvious to me now why Seabrook used that as his prelude because I think this book is his nervous breakdown. Yeah. And these sort of fugitive voices, bits of poem and Bible and half echoes, half rhymes, it's all kind of from the wasteland. I think the main thing, though, is that feeling of of madness and being on Mm. the edge of... So this is him in Margate... There are hunched, sedated souls lingering in cafes and souped-up milk bars. There are groups of squabbling Albanians outside. There are the young men of the front, this front, all bare arms, body art and fast-working, furious faces, faces that ought to be spouting water from the walls of Gothic buildings. But they're here and they speak, spraying spittle. I drift past the entrance to Dreamland. Margate's main attraction opened its doors in 1920, importing the name from an amusement park on Coney Island and the main ride, the Caterpillar, from Germany. While you queued for the big thrill, you could look up at your kids, looking down at you through a grill set in the huge horned head of the Snail Man, a tall wooden structure with stairs. The park was also the place to get your pocket picked and probably still is. <laughs> I mean, it, it gives you a flavour of it, although you can't quite do it justice unless you just d- devour the whole thing, I think. You know, you were saying uh, this isn't a book like, you know, you mistrust this isn't a book like any other. Yeah. I mistrust that you will want to read it in a sitting and then turn straight back to page one and start it again. Yeah. That's right? That's a thing, is. isn't it, that people say. But this book, I feel... Maybe you wouldn't want to go straight back. Maybe you want to open the window and take a and <laughs> take a deep breath or two. But the benefit of reading it straight through in one go, which you could do, I think you could do in three hours if you put your mind to it. Mm. The kind of accumulation of images mm. and the feverishness of mm. it. And I mean, each of the chapters has a distinct mood. So the the chapter about Richard Dad and Charles Dickens 
I mean, that's the most sort of scholarly and straightforward. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's the most... Calmest. Then it kind of ratchets up. So he goes to investigate his fascists and there's this bloke who... Is he? Is the bloke following him? He's dressed as a vicar. What's <laughs> yeah. going on? Yeah, the, the yeah. vicar, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying. It's like something out of the prisoner and he's, he's going down the yes, steps. Yes, that's exactly... It, it definitely has fit prisoner. I also felt that the only person I could imagine who could film this book, and it is unfilmable, is Nick Rogue. It has that same sort of strange... Yeah, that's Certainly, good. if we come yeah. to the ending, that the ending has a real sort of Nick Rogue feeling to it. The, the pink duffel coat and the... Oh, mm, the pink duffel coat. Yeah. That takes place in Deal. We have a little clip here of the section in Deal deals partly with uh, the late Charles Hawtrey, the, the carry-on actor who, as, as you said, Roger Lewis's book lovingly paints <laughs> a horrible portrait uh, of... Could you... Could, Matt, could we just hear uh, what I believe is a taxi driver uh, describing his dealings with Charles Hawtrey in the period we're, we're talking about? Sometimes um, we used to get um, a call from his house and he'd give us a little list saying what drinks he'd like delivered there. It was normally uh, bottles of sherry or... Gin, sometimes some mixers. So I got the impression it wasn't just for him, but maybe he was telling people down as well. But I don't remember ever having actually picked anyone else up from his house apart from himself. And that's from a BBC documentary about the lives of Carry On stars and specifically how unhappy they all were, which is a, a must watch. I love it. I love <laughs> this line from the book about Hawtrey. He said, Reeling round like an old wasted weasel turfed out of Toad Hall, he performed at the drop of a hip flask for any tabloid hack who happened to be passing through. They used me to dump me shat all over me. I could have been as famous as St James. <laughs> just, he does that sort of, oh. sort of Sebaldian thing mm. of putting uh, black and white photos through the book, which add to the oddness of it. Duncan Fallowell said the book was Carry On Mar Margate, rewritten as Dracula, which <laughs> is quite good. Mm. I mean, it's the, the final section is it, it's just so bizarre because the stories are basically all connected by this chap Gordon, yeah. who who Seabrook goes to talk to, who is an old old, old queen. He's he's a massive old queen who's sort of shagged all these people, and 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 it's like a sort of spider sitting in his web, and it takes him out to Robin Morm yeah. to Charles Hawtrey. Um, and it's just, and Freddie Mills, the boxer. Freddie Mills, the boxer. Who he's had sex with. Uh, yeah. And it's just the most extraordinary sort of tangled web. And the way he narrates that is because he's first, he says, well, a lot of people thought Freddie Mills was gay, um, you know, but obviously a lot of the people who, the, the Mills kind of historians don't, they discount it altogether. And then he says, you know, well, good for them. And then tells the story of the guy who's had yeah, sex with yeah, Freddie yeah. Mills, yeah. which is a very odd kind and of not terribly... You know, he, he talks... The, the, the guy who'd had sex with him talks about how hard Freddie Mills' body... He'd never had sex with anybody like that, but it was a sort of empty encounter. So uh, this is going on, isn't it? And you're reading this and you're thinking, whoa. like you said, this is a web of... What is this? And, and, you, then, and then what happens? And this is how the essay ends and how the book ends. Matthew, what happens at the end of the book? Well... Occasionally, there are reference to his his wife or his fiance in the book, aren't they? She's died. And she's died, and the book. And so you kind of your there's a little echo of this that comes through occasionally in the book in these little sections that are more personal. And then at the end, why don't you why don't you describe what happens, Rachel? Well, he's um, 
He's on his way home from having seen Gordon. They've had a long chat in Gordon's cottage. And he's he's going to get his bus. He's going to get his bus, and he he says, you know, it's clear that he's broke, and he says it's a question of rent. And we all know what rent means in that context. And he goes into the pub and he gets himself a bitter lemon. Yeah. And he sits down and he waits and some blokes come in and um, he gets talking to one of the blokes. And this bloke tells him a story about how when he was a younger man, he liked boys and there was one boy he was particularly fond of. And he, anyway, to cut a long story short, he thinks that this favourite boy of his was on the beach at Deal. And when he goes down to see him, he's wearing a pink duffel coat and the, the, he pulls back the hood and it's Charles Hawtrey. And then you cut back to the pub where Seabrook's listening to this. And it's obvious that they're going to go off and have sex and Seabrook's going to be paid for this. Yeah. Or at least that's what he implies. Yeah. And that's how it ends. Which is it's just a very strange ending, isn't it? I mean, the, even that little bit about bitter lemon. So when he goes into the pub, he orders a bitter lemon. But then a few paragraphs later, he's clearly drunk and he talks about being drinking yeah. gin. Yeah. So that's even kind of weird. That even the setup for that particular scene. Well, I think the guy's <clears> been giving him gin, right, hasn't yeah. he? And he just, he, right. he yeah. just thinks, well, I'm going to drink yeah. it because it's going to make it easier. Because yeah. he doesn't really have an appetite for what he's about to do. He just wants the cash. But then there were a couple of bits earlier on where he's talking to people about stuff and his first question is tell me about his cock they're quite in your face <laughs> forgive the pun <laughs> but, but they but suddenly they he snaps straight into this very direct question which again thinking about the earliest section about dickens or even tsl it's mm, that's mm, they're completely mm. kind of saying earlier matthew is the ending leads you quite discombobulated i think yeah but also, what were you saying? It sort of changes what all ending, what great endings do, which is make you think. What have I just read? Yeah. Rethink, yeah. recalibrate, yeah. recontextualise really what you just a, read. It's right. It's a sort of major focus pull, and you suddenly think, "Hell, I, I, yeah, I need to go back." There's a section in the mid, in, towards the end of the book, isn't there? The Freddie Mills section, which is also he kind of elides that into the murders, eight women who were who were murdered in London in the sixties. Well. Yeah. The Jack the Stripper murders because they were all well they were all murdered by being choked to death they were strangled and stripped mm -hmm. and then he goes on andy seabrook's next book his second yeah book, yeah yeah his well basically i'm going to say a little bit about seabrook based on what i could find out about him and what neil belton um told me which is really really interesting basically seabrook was born in 1960 this is where he grew up this area so he grew grows up in kent he had quite a strict and Christian upbringing. He studied at the University of Kent. He did an MA in Proust. Neil told me that he was never quite sure what Seabrook did for money a lot of the time. <laughs> but he definitely operated on the edge of legality and, off, and often over the other side of it. That he had, um, <laughs> at times done stuff he didn't feel too good about, which indeed you can mm. you know, seeping through this book, I think. And he told me that David Seabrook would come into the Granter office and monologue about either things that he was fascinated by, 
which is very much what what this book is like, mm. listening to that person mm. or ranting at length about how much he hated nearly all other contemporary <laughs> authors, like most authors do. His two favourite writers were Gordon Lish as a writer, He's famous as an editor. Yeah, yeah. He's Raymond yeah. Carver's editor. editor. Yeah. Yeah. A writer of his own writer. No, and no, also the, go- is a writer the ghost stories of Robert Aikman. Yeah. And Neil Belton said that he had never read, nor for that matter, heard of Robert Aikman, that Seabrook lent him these, at that stage, very rare first editions of some of Aikman's books. And Neil loved them and in turn got them republished by Faber because the Aikman backlist came out a few years ago. David Seabrook did that. Amazing. Isn't that fascinating, that kind of, those little links that you were talking about that you can well, discern. Well, there are definitely ghosts in this book, yeah, aren't yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a corpse-ridden book. Yeah. Uh, li- literally and metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> Could we, I just want to listen to something first. Could we talk a bit about the Richard Dad? Section. Richard Dad is probably best known uh, for killing his dad. For killing. Well, he's probably not best known for that. He's best known for appearing on the Antiques Roadshow. So we're just we're going to listen to a clip of a Richard Dad painting being uncovered on the Antiques Roadshow. Well, the first item we saw of really enormous value. I remember was in Barnstable in 1986. It was very strange the way it, uh, it turned up. The couple who owned it didn't know the first thing about it and thought it was valueless. And they weren't even going to bother to come to the show. But the dog needed a walk, and the dog's favourite walk was in the park, right by our front door. So as they reached for the dog's lead when leaving home, they said, why don't we take that picture? We don't know anything about it. Just on the off chance, we'll take the picture. So they took the picture off the wall and brought it in with Doggy. And uh, the expert that day was Peter Nahum. Now, it is an extraordinary painting. I don't know who this painting is by. I know it's a wonderful painting. I would hope that some indications, I mean, it would be too much to hope, really, that this was a lost painting by Richard Dyer. Obviously, I've only had a a few minutes to look at this, um, and it needs some investigation. So what I would like to ask you to do is if we may take it to London on your behalf and investigate it further. Oh, yes, certainly. We'd be interested as well, you think. So with the owner's permission, we took the picture back to London, took it to the expert, and we said, look, is this the long-lost Richard Dad? And she said, yes, it certainly is. So then we had to go back to the couple in Barnstable, went to their bungalow with a film crew, and that's when Peter gave them the uh, good news and the valuation. It is an international treasure where lost picture, and I feel that it could possibly um, make somewhat over £100,000. <laughs> Hugh Scully, that's proper antiques roadshow, not for Owner Bruce. Yeah, the, old, <laughs> the old school. So the painter Richard Dad. We were talking about this as the most orthodox mm. uh, essay. What does Seabrook do with Richard Dad in the essay? Well, he first of all tells the story <clears throat> of Dad's madness and the fact that he murdered his father. And, of course, what happened was that Dad was taken to an asylum and he spent the rest of his days there, and that's where he painted all of his great masterpieces. But then Seabrook, he starts to think about, you know, what sent dad mad and dad went on this extraordinary journey across Europe to Egypt 
So Seabrook goes off on this kind of digression about opium, about the Victorian passion for Egypt. And then he does one of his strange kind of... (laughs) You know, he puts it. That's enough of that. Yeah. And then he (laughs) posits this extraordinary theory about Edwin Drood, Dickens' final unfinished novel. I mean, I don't know how convincing it is. I'm not a Druidist. (laughs) But. um, You sense that Seabrook wasn't terribly keen on the Druidists. But he makes a link, doesn't he? He thinks that Dickens may have had. The dad's story may have been somewhere in, in the mix and he picks up all these clues. But I think what he does, which is really interesting, is it's almost like he makes dream connections. He's not interested in making causal exactly. connections. He lays things that have strange shapes that are similar Absolutely. next to one another and leaves it to the reader to make those kind of connections. And he's interested in sort of folk memory yeah. and things that feel familiar even though they can't possibly be familiar because you've never been there before or whatever. Mm. That kind of weird... Mm. It's all a about the uncanny, isn't it, a lot I, of it? I yeah. also think that that essay is important in the structure of the book too because it because it's the most orthodox one. It's sort of reassuring. I was just going to say, yeah. it's Isn't a it? bit of a pat on the back. Yeah. You're going to be interested in this. I'm interested in Victorian painting. Yeah, but yeah. what you find out later is I'm interest, massively interested in paedophilia and buggery as well. And I can use the skills I demonstrate in the Richard Dad chapter to link Dad and Drood, but don't linger over, yeah. to more subversive effect as the book goes on. Stick I, with me. And yeah. he's very good about the Dickens industry yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in Rochester, good. isn't he? And he really takes the mickey out of the sort of Mr Pickwick waddling down the high yeah. street and, yeah. the, you know, and all of that. The it, heritage. Yeah. yeah. So, so David Seabrook died in 2009. This was his first book. His second book is called Jack of Jumps. I have a copy, but I hadn't read it until a few weeks ago when I knew we were going to be covering All the Devils Are Here. And as I started reading it, I was thinking, wow, this is great too. And actually, as it goes on, you can feel Seabrook getting weighed down by it. It's a book about the Jack the Stripper murders. He had been given access to the police files for the first time. But there's a terrible sense of, first of all, he's pretty unpleasant about quite a few of the people talked about in the book. And the second thing is there's a weariness about it. It's a 350-page book. By, unfortunately, murder number three, you can feel him thinking to himself, fucking hell, this is murder number three. I've still got five to go. It's a a slog, unfortunately. But he was about... When he died, he was working on another book about the... David Jacobs. Yes, David Jacobs, the 1960s show business lawyer who was Brian Epstein's lawyer who hanged himself in his garage in yeah. Hove uh, in 1968. Um, I mean, I think that... Um, have you read Jack of Jumps? Well, uh, yeah, and I don't want anyone to read Jack of Jumps um, <laughs> because I just think it's pure distilled misogyny. I mean, it's just, I, find, I find it almost unreadable. He's mm. so vile about the women. The women mm-hmm. were all mm-hmm. mostly prostitutes and he's so vile about them and it's just it's it's kind of it becomes intolerable i mean he's very very good at evoking the seedy side of 60s london he's brilliant about you know milk bars and clip joints and all of that but the way he talks about the women is just he 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 seems to identify with the murderer even though he doesn't know who the murderer is andrew uh, mayo he agrees with you completely rachel he he basically said the thing that's wrong with it is the 
misanthropy and misogyny have both been allowed to mm. grow wild and go crazy. And it, it's, I suppose because it's uncoupled, he says something in All the Devils Are Here right at the beginning about T.S. Eliot, which I really struck me, which is that the famous line on Margate Sand, full stop, I'd never noticed the full yes, stop I know. before. I, I think that's brilliant, that bit. I think that's really uh, good. I connect nothing with nothing. And then he says it's the first and only time that T.S. Eliot transcribed something that was in front of him, which is incredibly powerful because it's this idea of mm. Eliot recovering. But in a way, that's what Seabrook does throughout this book. He kind of transcribes what's in front of him. And he starts hairs Whether running, it's there or not. Whether it's there or not. Which is I mean, in, he which doesn't is... ever check anyone's story no. either, does yeah. he? I no, mean, no Gordon of... says, I had sex with Freddie Mills. Yeah. He doesn't try... He doesn't say, you know, did he this doesn't... happen? He, doesn't, he just leaves it there, yeah. as it were, for you to... That's what makes this book. And I think it's extraordinary. It's like one of those sort of dark flowerings that English literature throws up, sort of Death's Jest book by Thomas Lovell Beddoes, mm. which almost nobody's read, or Confessions, Scottish literature, Confessions of a Justified yes, Sinner yes. by James Hogg. Yeah. You know, these are really odd, strange, not get roundable books. This book, it will haunt me for, you know, for, for you a know, long the thing time. About, the thing about this book, I noticed when I, when I told people that we were doing this book on Backlisted, what you find is that most people haven't heard of it, yeah. but the handful of people who have heard of it are passionate about it. Yeah. Like So Andrew Mayle, who I mentioned, he really likes it. Um, Jason Hazley, currently Britain's best-selling author because he is the co-author of the Ladybird parody <laughs> books. He is obsessed with this book. Yeah. I was delighted that anybody was giving it some time and space which I is mean, brilliant what i would say is that it's a great antidote to a lot of things that are very prevalent in our literary culture so it's not i mean this comes from the time of psychogeography and now we're into the new nature writing mm. and a lot of those books are so overwritten this book's the opposite <laughs> of that he he's almost Lots he doesn't try he doesn't yeah. try i mean no. he he's a good writer inherently he doesn't but, work it up and he, he, sometimes there are repetitions and cliches and things like that, and that's all, almost it's, a part of it. Because uh, you get a sense of the author from it. With yeah. lots of uh, New Nature writing books, you don't get any sense of the yeah. author at all. With this, you get a real sense. When I mean, you said earlier on, Andy, that the book's about him, and it is about all these yeah, other people, but yeah. it's kind of about yeah, him. That's, that's right. That's its strength, I think, and yeah. that's what gives it that edge and makes it but feel wild thing, and weird and kind of wonderful. The other thing it's an antidote to is this obsession that people have about likability you know yeah. i didn't like that book because no one in it was likable yeah. there's no one in this book that's likable not a single person no. yeah. and seabrook's not likable and that's yeah. why i like it the, the books it really reminds me of nigel richardson have you ever read nigel richardson it is a kind of less dysfunctional version of this he wrote a book called dog days in soho I wrote a really mm. wonderful book about brighton called breakfast in brighton oh, which is oh, kind of which that. is Wonderful. It starts with him walking in yeah, Brighton yeah, and yeah. painting in someone's house mm. and he gets obsessed by this painting and he hangs out in his pub in Brighton and meets all these people that swirl in and swirl out and tells all the kind of strange stories about Brighton. They're very similar, but not as crazy as... Ma not as crazy Matthew, as have you got a tenuous link this time? Well, the, so the, the weird thing about this book is there are so many threads in it that literally, like <laughs> Rachel was saying earlier, that thing about you pick it up and you think it's written for you. You know, I had exactly that sense as well. So there's, it was really impossible to find anything because on every page there's something really from 
Donald Sindon's memoir. I'm probably the only person under 70 <laughs> who's read Donald Sindon's memoir, which is wonderfully called A Touch of the Memoirs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, Stephen that's, Toast. That's referred to in this book. Or 39 Steps, I'm talking about John Buchan. I work with John Buchan's grandson, Toby Buchan. Toby. Mm. Wonderful Toby Buchan, kind of fantastic editor. And really, really everywhere you turn, there's... There's stuff like that. The other person it reminds me of, I don't know if anyone's read Jonathan Rendell. Yeah. 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 His something about the Jonathan Rendell's personality that is very fragile. Also, Um, yeah. Wrote that amazing book, This Bloody Mary's the Last Thing I Own. Yeah. I think you're right about that, definitely. Also died sadly young. Died sadly young. One thing I would say is this book kind of gets into you and it becomes, I mean, it had a huge influence on me when I wrote my book about the 50s and that book has a lot of footnotes. Some critics hated that, but I love footnotes. And and that was all entirely down to this book because right. I decided I wanted to write a digressionary sort of book. And I managed to put a little tribute in to David Seabrook because one of the women in my book had worked for Lord Northcliffe, the owner of the Daily Mail, and he had a house at Broadstairs. Right. And I put this in the book for no other reason than for David Seabrook, really, because it hadn't pertained not at all to my <laughs> thesis. But one day, Lord Northcliffe was on the beach with one of his editors, Hamilton Fife. And Hamilton Fife was very, very shocked because uh, Lord Northcliffe picked up his walking stick and he bashed a seagull and then he beat it to death on the sand and I thought that was so Seabrookian and that should be in here shouldn't it (laughs) Um, it will always be with me this book funnily enough I found it very influential when I reread it this week I realised that I had inadvertently I mean I'd name check it in the year of reading dangerously but I'd lifted a couple of things but I love books of which this is a great example of the thing that you were talking about Rachel where the author becomes impatient (laughs) seemingly with the reader even as they are writing the book and will turn to the reader to say but what about this Mm. and there'll be a little there'll be some little piece of grumpiness or bad temper Mm. and Roger Lewis you mentioned with Mm. in the the private little book we've talked on this podcast about Roger Lewis's Peter Sellers book that's a brilliant example of it footnotes which are there purely to allow Lewis to (laughs) bang the table and tell the reader how cross he is I could talk about that book all day because I was at the Sunday Times when that was we serialised that at the Sunday Times that Sellers book I was a very young girl then and oh Roger Lewis well, <laughs> you can't see it, but Rachel's holding her head in her hands as she says that. Bye, everyone. <laughs> we, um, we we probably ought to draw it to a close. Uh, we should also say that this is the first full podcast that we've done on a non-fiction book. So thank you, Rachel, for, well, they're certainly introducing me to it. I can't believe, I love that story about you. This is exactly w- w- why we do this. The fact that this book haunted you for all those years until you found it. It's going to haunt me now forever as well. Thanks to Rachel Cook, to Matthew Clayton, and once again to our sponsors Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash BacklistedPod, and on our page on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk forward slash Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then... Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can download All the Devils Are Here right now. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com 
forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.